If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. If you got sick in Britain before the National Health Service was founded in 1948, you'd have a very different experience of healthcare to what you might expect nowadays. For today's podcast episode, our content director, David Musgrove, talks to Professor Barry Doyle about what British healthcare and hospitals were like before the NHS and how the experience compared to elsewhere in the world. Today, I am talking to Professor Barry Doyle, who's Professor of Health History at the University of Huddersfield, and we're going to talk about the history of healthcare. Uh, Barry has researched healthcare and especially hospitals in England, France and Central Europe. He's currently looking at the emergence of a hospital system in colonial Africa and examining first aid in 20th century Britain and France. Now, what we're going to talk about today is what happened uh, in the UK um, before the NHS. The NHS opened up healthcare treatment for everyone uh, in the UK after the Second World War. Um, a famous date in 1948, I guess, is, is when people tend to think about the start of the NHS. But we're going to talk about what happened before that. Um, so, Barry, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. How are you today? Oh, fine. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Absolute pleasure. So first thing, when do we start to see the makings of a modern health service in Britain? And how does that compare timing wise to other parts of the world? Um, yeah, it's uh, an interesting uh, idea. When when does it start? It's probably uh, in the medieval period, long before the kind of area that I'm I'm usually researching. The um, monasteries and religious uh, houses offered most of the healthcare provision, uh, but it would seem that sort of during the the Reformation and the dissolution of the monasteries, much of that broke down, and it turned to the the parishes, to local authorities, to try to provide pick up some of that lost uh, healthcare that had previously been uh, provided by the monasteries. Um, and we see that slowly happening in the 17th uh, century. Uh, but really, the big kind of differences start to occur 
in the mid-18th century when you start to see hospitals being floated, being created by philanthropic uh, groups of, of people uh, who start to float hospitals in, in the, mostly in the cities. Uh, and these are, are known as the voluntary hospitals. And they've become some of the really big names uh, in terms of healthcare provision uh, from the mid-18th century onwards, uh, looking at somewhere like Leeds General Infirmary, uh, the hospitals in Edinburgh, many of the institutions in London. These emerge in that mid-18th century development of the voluntary hospital. Um, and it's partly called voluntary because it's paid for entirely by uh, donors, by subscriptions, and the, the work of the hospital, the medical work, is undertaken by doctors for free. So by the mid-18th century, you start to see this system developing. Uh, and beside that, early 19th century, you also see the new poor law, which kind of replaces the parish authority. And it has a minimal health care uh, necessity. It, it provides minimal uh, health care for mostly the aged the infirm, chronically ill, or, or the very, very poor who can't, can't serve themselves. So by the mid-19th century, you've got these two systems operating. You've got the, the poor law, which provides a, an absolute minimal safety net for the for very poorest, and then the slightly uh, kind of the respectable working classes, they're called at the time, uh, are allowed, or the respectable poor, they're allowed to... Um, receive treatment from places like these voluntary hospitals. And there's a second big boom of them in the mid-19th century uh, through to the, the end of the 20th, the end of the 19th century. Um, so by that system, you know, you've got a kind of a big, fairly widespread institutional system by the end of the 19th century. In a context of uh, Europe, uh, this is a very similar model to what happens in America, but in a European context, uh, the state, the local authority and the religious houses all continue to have a much bigger um, role than charity, uh, and their system develops possibly more slowly as a result of that. So um, the voluntary hospitals, so they're, they're funded by groups of, of secular philanthropists, basically. What, what, why were they doing it? What was in it for them? Um, for most of the philanthropists, it was just good works. It was It was... Doing, doing good. Uh, Britain uh, in the 18th and 19th century is, is a very religious society. It's very heavily influenced by uh, more radical, more reformist, non-conformist um, types of uh, religious ideas, uh, which are very much based on the individual's service to society. So many of these people do come from that kind of background. There are also an aristocracy or an elite who are partly looking for a way to, to justify their, their continued role in a much more commercial uh, society, a more democratic society. So those people who kind of run the, the voluntary hospitals, they come to it from those religious or sort of democratic uh, perspectives. Uh, but you also see medical doctors are looking for places to work. They're looking for a, a way to uh, develop their skills. And this is partly why they are willing to, to work for free, um, because they get access to a range of patients who they can build their skills around. They can practice uh, new medical uh, treatments. Uh, they can train medical students. Um, and then ultimately, they can then present themselves as specialists, as experts uh, in a particular area, which allows them to attract fee-paying wealthy uh, patients. Uh, and so part of the, the sort of the free side of it is, is advertising to bring in the wealthy, the wealthy patients as well. Uh, and by the mid-19th century, specialisms become a key, a key feature because uh, most of the voluntary hospitals have a fairly small uh, uh, medical group who run them. And new people start to try and break in by offering new specialisms, which they then float their own hospitals. So for this, uh, the early 19th century, skin hospitals, eye hospitals are very popular. Mid-19th century, it's women. Uh, women's hospitals become uh, prominent. Some hospitals for children, uh, maternity 
And these specialist areas begin to, to emerge to compete with the voluntary, uh, general voluntary hospitals. Right now, so you mentioned uh, fee paying there, but for the for the voluntary hospitals, for the for the working class people who wanted to get into them, they they weren't paying fees. So how do you how do you access them? How did, did you just wander off the street and say I'm sick, or did you have to get dispensation for someone to enter the building? Yeah, I mean this in the uh, 19th century, this is seen to be the big uh, kind of stumbling block of the system, in that it is not entirely based on medical need. It is based on a combination of medical need and patronage. Most people who are admitted to these hospitals are admitted because someone amongst those donors, amongst those subscribers, is willing to give them a ticket to get admission. So uh, you you go and see your your employer, you go and see uh, the local charitable organisation or uh, some other uh, local body and ask for an admissions ticket to be admitted to the hospital and then the doctor will then look at you and decide whether or not your case fits uh, the uh, the hospital's requirements uh, you'll be checked out to make sure that you are worthy of treatment that you're not earning too much money or you're not too poor not too rich and then you will you finally get admitted the exception to that is an emergency if you get run down on the street then they'll see you straight away. You can go to the casualty room. Someone will take you there, and then they work out afterwards who's going to meet the cost of it, who's going to provide the ticket, or who's actually going to, later in the 19th century and into the 20th century, the charges are actually uh, start to come in. Um, but yeah, it's a, mostly it's this kind of uh, patronage system in the 19th century. What you start to see in the early 20th century is a shift towards doctors determining access on, on medical need. They become much more influential in, in making those decisions, and that is tied to sort of ways in which patients are then uh, are charged, though often not directly, uh, in the early 20th century. Once patients start kind of becoming monetized, becoming paid for by one system or another, then you start to see doctors taking over medical control uh, and the patronage system disappearing. So to, to follow that, I'm just going to uh, quote from one of your research uh, papers on this, on the topic. Uh, you, you've said, uh, to secure admission to a voluntary hospital, at least until the First World War, the patient usually required a letter of recommendation from a subscriber, a member of the local elite, or the support of a hospital doctor, if their Ill, illness was sufficiently interesting. What does that mean? What would, it, what would an interesting illness be? Um, an interesting illness would be one that doesn't appear as a routine. And, and so, as I mentioned, hospitals, these voluntary hospitals operate in part to allow specialists uh, to develop their skills and they uh, work in part to train medical students. Now, if you want to train medical students, you have to be able to show them the routine patients that they're going to see all the time, and they need to get re used to working with those students and dealing with those students. Um, so people who come in with standard fractures or who have normal skin complaints or who have something in their eye, you know, those sorts of um, surgical and, and, and kind of visible things, they will be uh, the routine work of the hospital. And the medical students will work with those and the um, and the uh, resident uh, hospital doctors who are, who are those house uh, house doctors, the new newly qualified who do some of the a lot of the basic work. The consultants will want to see something different. They want to see a kind of patient who who has an illness that they're not you know is, isn't common. Um, so it might be uh, a skin disease that's unusual. It might be. Uh, a fracture that's in a, an, an unusual place. But more often in this period, it's going to be something that a physician deals with. It's going to be something that's not necessarily visible. Uh, and you're moving away from people having lots of, you know, kind of 19th century infectious diseases towards people picking up new kinds of um, conditions, uh, cancer, uh, uh, strokes, uh, heart disease, these sorts of uh, new newer uh, conditions become much more interesting to doctors who can develop um, specialisms in this area. So by the end of the 19th century, you're beginning to see cancer specialists emerging uh, across a range of different parts of the body. Uh, and that will be an interesting kind of uh, um, 
patient that they would be okay, well we'll have that one over the some over the person who's got a fairly standard broken arm well maybe not broken arm but you know who has a fairly standard condition okay so so you'd be advised to get some sort of exotic condition if you wanted to yeah. uh, to get it it, hel- it helped a lot you know to get in get in you know don't just you know have have the right patron and then on top of that have something a little bit out of the ordinary uh, if you will it doesn't mean to say they could fix it you know that's the sort of slight disadvantage is that if you do turn up with a very unusual disease particularly you know something that's coming from from the colonies from the empire you know you might actually be kind of uh, surrounded by a group of doctors who go hmm that's interesting and then can't do anything for you anyway so uh you know your, your admission was possibly the best that will happen is you'll be nicely fed and looked after for a few weeks well uh, just just on that what presumably these voluntary hospitals they were um by their very nature individualistic and uh, and not following a, a set pattern of care um so was quality of care and, and the experience very different between th- these various institutions in different cities Yes, um, I mean, I think again, this is a a kind of issue which becomes very much discussed uh, in the early twentieth century, as we move towards the NHS. Is the variability, is the lack of uniformity in in, in the way in which uh, um, hospitals operate? So, if you're in a big city with a medical school like Leeds or Manchester or, or London then you know you've got access to the best doctors you've got access to the best training the most modern methods your hospital is possibly quite well funded um and the the demand although it is huge is 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 managed effectively by by the subscription system by the letter of recommendation system if you're in more out of the way places or new industrial towns so i've done some research on middlesbrough in Middlesbrough, they don't have those advantages. They've got a, a cohort of decent doctors, but those decent doctors are not networked into the the most modern kind of uh, un, uh, the most modern networks of uh, education. They probably qualified twenty years before. They might occasionally go to a to a lecture up in Newcastle or down in Leeds to kind of pick up some new ideas. A new doctor might come in and they share some some ideas. But they don't have those uh, kind of um, associations that you might find in the big cities. They don't have the staff clubs. So there you've got slightly less advanced medical training, fewer technologies, the new technology is not so prevalent. And they're not as well off in the short term. Initially, they're, they're, these new hospitals are actually very poor because they don't have any kind of big endowments like London hospitals have. They don't have very we- very wealthy subscribers, or if they do, they only have a, a small number of them. So, uh, yeah, so provision in somewhere like Middlesbrough is different to Leeds. And then when you go into rural areas and semi-rural areas, you're looking at either no uh, no provision at all or the poor law, or what emerges from the 1860s is the movement called cottage hospitals. And cottage hospitals are small, uh, small bed institutions run by a local general practice uh, practitioner or a couple of, two or three of them. Uh, and they, they take in a few patients, possibly for payment, and they do some routine work on them. They'll do small-scale operations, but they don't do the big work. And I believe, um, you know, for example, there was a, a, a cottage hospital storyline in Downton Abbey for, for a while uh, around, uh, around how kind of keeping the cottage hospital open. And these are very much focused on rural areas, seaside towns, suburbs. And they're, uh, I suppose they're kind of clientele. Their patients are more likely to be lower middle class rather than necessarily the kind of working class patient that you see in the big urban hospitals. Now, okay, so uh, we've talked about voluntary, the voluntary side of things. We've talked about the cottage hospitals a bit there. Uh, you mentioned at the start of, of the conversation about the, the poor laws and, and that side of things. Um, presumably the, the, the poor law institutions were much worse in terms of provision and not really doing not do, not doing very much at all in in terms of actual healthcare. They were yes, very much uh, an institution of last resort, and really, uh, until the eighteen sixties seventies, the the medical aspect of the poor law 
was minimized. Uh, and a lot of it was viewed as kind of out, as partially outdoor relief. So a relieving officer might give someone medicine or something in order to keep them in the community rather than let them in the institution. From the 1860s, you start to see the identification of poor law infirmaries. Uh, so specific uh, parts of the building, or even in one or two cases, specific buildings, which are assigned to treat uh, patients who have medical conditions. But treat's really a bit unfair. They're, they're designed to care for uh, patients with medical conditions. So they do that uh, in the later 19th century, and they begin to build that work up. And again, this tends to be the bigger cities, uh, the bigger hospitals. So St. James's, as it becomes in Leeds, uh, the, the, um, the Beckett Street uh, Infirmary, uh, currently now the Thackeray Medical Museum, um, the Beckett Street Infirmary develops as a substantial hospital, a really very, very large hospital, but most of the work it does uh, is, um, is care of a caring nature. They have one medical officer, and by the early 20th century, you start to see them getting some specialists coming in to deal with venereal disease or tuberculosis uh, or other kinds of conditions which the general hospitals are not very keen to deal with themselves. So it's it, it's really a kind of care system, uh, and the medical staff is, is minuscule, and even the nursing staff until 1918, many of them are just in, inmates who become kind of carers. Who they're, they're called nurse, but they're not qualified. And you only really start to see the qualified nurses coming into the poor law system uh, after about 1900. There are very few of them, and their conditions are much worse than they are uh, in the voluntary hospitals. So, so the poor law does exist. After 1918, it gets much better. Um, and, and I would be of the opinion that it's really kind of... There are very few poor law infirmaries that are actually hospitals by the 1930s, but a lot of them are doing good work. Uh, and a lot of them are relieving the general hospitals of many of the patients that could overwhelm the general hospital. Uh, and a system is beginning to develop slowly. It's still very, very tense, uh, and the relationships between the two sectors are very tense into the 30s, but they are beginning to kind of uh, work out who who should be looking after which kind of patient and who's most effective for doing that. So just, so just thinking about um, the moment at which the state becomes kind of interested in healthcare, um, I'm not sure whether we would describe the Paula institutions as sort of state-sanctioned healthcare or not. Um, but at what point does 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 there become actual state provision that is uh, on a some sense of, of nationwide basis? The first major intervention is around infectious diseases. Um, the, the central state, as in the government, uh, never uh, has any particular role in, in providing any kind of hospital care uh, in, in England uh, before 1948. Uh, but the local authorities begin to pick up some of this work. So the first kind of network of local authority institutions is around infectious diseases. Uh, and these uh, become uh, obligatory uh, by the 1880s, that you have to, local authorities have to make provision for infectious diseases, and there's particular concern about uh, about smallpox. Uh, although the last, the big smallpox epidemics are beginning to kind of recede by the end of the 19th century, um, but they're also concerned about uh, diseases like measles, scarlet fever, diphtheria, uh, which are increasingly. Uh, diseases which affect children uh, rather than rather than adults. Uh, there's also big concern. Cholera is is a, a major uh, player in the early and mid 19th century, but it fades out. It, it's it's not really a big issue in Britain by the end of the 19th century. Uh, typhus, typhoid, <laughs> mix those two. I always mix those two. Up. Typhoid uh, becomes a big uh, area of concern. Uh, for much of the, the later 19th century, uh, when the two kind of versions are split and we're much more aware of the differences between them and how they're spread, infectious disease hospitals become very much focused on that, um, on dealing with that condition. Um, uh, 
And then, uh, but with those other things, smallpox, um, scarlet fever, um, diphtheria, and measles, these become children's diseases by the early 20th century. And what you find is these big infectious disease hospitals spend most of their time dealing with children for two to three weeks uh, of, of care and isolation, and then, and then they're sent back to their parents. It's very interesting the way in the late 19th century, you know, Britain, which is seen to be a very individualistic country and opposed to the state kind of intervening in individuals' lives, people become very willing to allow their children to be taken into these institutions. Um, there's a kind of moment sometime possibly in the 1880s, 1890s, where they recognize that the children are much safer in the isolation hospital than they would be at home, uh, and that their neighbors are safer, their families are safer. So uh, the isolation hospital becomes a kind of network across the country, um, and it becomes very much around uh, the care of children by the 1920s. Um, Alter, the other big area where the government gets uh, involved is in tuberculosis, um, which is, this again, a 19th century, uh, very, very widespread disease in the 19th century. Uh, and it's, it's a high killer of young adults, which makes uh, the government more interested in it because, it, obviously, it's taking workers out of the workforce and it either takes them out by death or it takes them out by long-term incapacity. So the government looks to support increasingly uh, tuberculosis uh, treatment uh, through uh, isolation hospitals, but then also through sanatorium movement. Uh, the British are one of the, the nations that buys into the sanatorium movement uh, in the late 19th century uh, and invests quite a lot of money in that. And in 1910, we'll probably get around to this in a minute, but in 1910, national or 1911, national insurance, health insurance comes in and one of the areas that's covered by national health insurance in England is, is care for tuberculosis. So that helps to kind of build another uh, state infrastructure. So by 1914, you've got a big network of isolation hospitals, which are free to enter. You've got a, a growing network of tuberculosis uh, sanatoria and institutions. And you've got uh, the poor law, which is increasingly becoming medicalized forms of care. They're still not necessarily treatment or cure. Um, can you just define what a sanatorium is or was? Hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I guess. Um, a sanatorium is a, an institution where people... It's a effectively a rest care institution. And people went into sanatoria for very long periods of rest. Uh, and the idea was that essentially that tuberculosis fed on weak bodies, which it does, um, and that if you strengthen people's bodies by firstly uh, lots of bed rest, lots of fresh air, lots of good food, um, milk, for example, is strongly associated with the sanatorium movement, then you build up their, their physical strength, then you set them to work and they do... They kind of re uh, occupational therapy is a major part of the sanatorium movement. You gradually get back to, into into your ability to work. You recover your strength, and then after as much as a year, you return into the labour force, healthy and happy, and ready to become uh, an active worker again. Unfortunately, there's a lot of scepticism about whether or not it worked. It depended how soon in the disease you were captured. If you were uh, treated early on through the sanatorium method, then there seems to be evidence that it did work. Um, but if you were quite advanced, which most people were by the time they were kind of deemed ready to be admitted into this kind of system because it was very expensive, uh, by that point, you were, it was usually too late for you. And so sanatorium treatments uh, didn't were very effective. Um, the other thing is they, they do try to use it for women, um, and they find that women basically, you know, won't use sanatorium treatment because it's too long. They have to be away from their houses, their homes, their families for too long. So they'll come in, they'll do a couple of months, and then they'll have to go home and and look after their families, uh, either because they think they have to or because they're actually they do have to. Um, and it was interesting in Leeds in the 1930s. They build a very, very attractive women's uh, wing 
to their sanatorium, their TB uh, provision, in order to try and get women to stay uh, in the in the system to come and sort of spend a few months sitting in this um, in this lovely white modernist building, glass, concrete, uh, metal, with south facing view. You can't see leads from it. You know, it's a it's a lovely kind of uh, uh, environment to be in, and it's hoped that by doing that, that they will get the women to stay. I don't think it's it's particularly any more effective than it was before, because the problems still remain of of kind of not being able to give up so much time away from home. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The big difference that they come up with is that their National Health Service is going to be universal, free at the point of delivery, funded by taxation. This is hugely different to the systems that develop across Europe uh, at the same time, which all build on the national insurance system, the contributory system, Uh, the independence of doctors, the independence of institutions. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling? The freedom? How the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is, driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One. For the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. So local authorities were essentially obliged to provide some provision for these sorts of infectious diseases, and that was presumably funded by local taxation, right? Yeah. Um, the infectious disease institutions are, are funded by local taxation from what in Britain is called the rates. Poor law institutions are also funded from a separate, uh, a separate um, system of rates. Um, so all its local taxpayers are paying for it all. Um, and um, you know, as with the poor law, as with prisons, as with other kinds of institution in the 19th century, local taxpayers don't want to spend a lot of money on these sorts of things. So they are parsimonious in the extreme. The government will lend them money to build them, but then the cost of that remains on the rates for, for years to come. So uh, local authorities are often reluctant to build even if they can borrow the money to do it, because they know they're going to leave a charge, a charge on the rates. Um, that said, you do see some very uh, handsome buildings. Um, again, I'm mentioning Leeds, but the Seacroft development at Leeds in 1904, uh, in, uh, which includes the Killingbeck Sanatorium, uh, is an enormous uh, operation which uh, costs quarter of a million pounds in 1904, which is a phenomenal amount of money. Uh, and is all borrowed from from government. So the, the local ratepayer meets the cost of these things, and the local ratepayer becomes, I guess, less 
parsimonious as time goes by. They become more aware of the fact that, you know, people, it's possibly better to spend a bit more money and cure people than it is to be, a, you know, sort of skin flint and, and see them continuing to be ill. Um, and then the big kind of step change, well, it's not a big step, it's not a big, the step change comes in 1911 with National Health Insurance, which covers the cost of tuberculosis and also gives a, a grant towards maternity uh, benefits. So maternity uh, and tuberculosis begin to be covered through state funding. and That's the kind of first big breakthrough uh, in that area. Um, but mostly, you know, if it's not voluntary, it's funded by, by local authority rates. So all the cost of these things lies on local communities. We'll, we'll jump back into the 1910-11 thing in just a second, but you made a really interesting point earlier I just wanted to pick up on about this uh, sense of um, people coming back to Britain. I mean, this is we're talking about the, the period of empire when, when British people were around the world and people potentially coming back with exotic and, uh, and unpleasant diseases. Uh, and, and then you've described a system here where there's quite a lot of isolation, keeping people away from people to, tr- to stop the spread of infectious diseases. This all seems quite, quite modern uh, with our current concerns about what's happening today. Um, so was, was there a big concern about uh, uh, foreign diseases, exotic diseases, and, and and the potential spread of infection around uh, around the around the populace. Indeed, and it it's a, a wonderfully uh, a wonderful example of kind of English exceptionalism uh, trying to play itself out and tying itself up in knots. Essentially, Britain is a is a trading nation in the mid nineteenth century more than at any time uh, ever it is the as you know the workshop of the world it's the biggest maritime empire it's the biggest maritime power and it operates on a system of free trade so anything can come into britain and anything should be able to leave britain and there are no kind of restrictions on that and that applies to to people as well as to goods so when infectious diseases begin to uh, kind of emerge and run riot, cholera in, in 1832 uh, and again in the 1840s and 1850s, um, things like um, you know, epidemics of, of typhus, typhoid, uh, and then in 1918 with the, the influenza pandemic, you see the governments trying to kind of come to terms with how is it going to deal with its requirement to keep the ports open, but its requirement to keep the pe- people out. And so a very kind of English version of quarantine develops, uh, a port-based quarantine that doesn't quite keep everyone out, uh, but tries to kind of manage this through isolation hospitals. So Liverpool is, is in the 1840s very much a case here where they build huge tented isolation units where they put uh, put their patients um, and the medical officer of health insists that this is a thing called English cholera, which is is just basically summer diarrhea. Um, you know, he tries to minimise it so he doesn't have to close the port, and that continues. And you see this actually. I felt very much that this was what was happening last year, in March last year. The kinds of ways in which the government was behaving in in February March around around isolation, around quarantine, around keeping the borders open, was very much part of that English tradition of of trying to manage disease without resorting to quarantine, which was often seen as a a very European way of dealing with it. In the specific terms in relation to kind of uh, imperial or or diseases that were coming uh, and encountering uh, through uh, colonialism, uh, what you see is a good response to that is the development of of tropical medical centres. Liverpool, again, is one of them, and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine is another, uh, where doctors, scientists begin to really study this, and you get see the development of what we now understand as kind of colonial medicine, which is very much about using the modern sciences of today to try and understand, of the day, the day to try and understand these diseases Keep and treat them and deal with them uh, kind of amongst local populations, but also isolating them if they do if they do end up back in uh, back in Britain. Um, and so those isolation units are used for that as well. Um, brilliant. That's the, yeah, that's it. Does it all does sound very resonant and interesting in in light of what's happening today? Um, before we move on to um, when uh, national insurance or, or something akin to that um, kicks in. 
if if you were um, willing to pay and had the money to pay, wh- what was the level of a private healthcare system? If you were rich, could you subvert all these uh, all these other options? Um, not really, uh, which is one of the ironies of the the pre NHS system. Um, in that, uh, you know, really up until nineteen forty eight the middle class and especially the lower middle class were one of the least well-provided groups in the country for healthcare. If you were very wealthy, you know, if you were the king or, or an aristocrat or a very rich business person, you could buy the best consultants. You could buy those Harley Street doctors to treat you. They, those Harley Street doctors would have their own private uh, hospitals, which for some reason were called nursing homes, uh, and easily confused with nursing homes, which were not quite the same. Um, but doctors ran, uh, they would run nursing homes where they would undertake private operations, where they would have their own staff to care for for wealthy patients. Wealthy patients would pay a substantial amount of money for this. However, uh, the problem that those doctors increasingly found themselves facing as time went by, was that they didn't have access to the technology. They didn't have access to the kinds of technologies that were available in uh, the big uh, voluntary hospitals that are modernizing rapidly in the uh, the first third of the 20th century. So as they acquire pathology labs, as they acquire um, x-ray machines, as they acquire a whole range of other kind of technologies, both mechanical and, and scientific, the um, the doctors, uh, the private doctors, don't have access to that, and the middle classes start to complain. So, in the twenties and thirties, they start to push for access to the voluntary hospitals um, on a payment basis, um, and so mm, the big voluntary hospitals uh, begin to concede this by the nineteen thirties because they see it as a way of making money to keep themselves going and expanding. Um, so they start to permit private patients who pay the hospital for board and lodgings, uh, and then the patient will then pay his, uh, or, his or her uh, consultant privately for the treatment. Uh, but the consultant then can have access to the technologies of the modern hospital. So by the 30s, around about 10% of the patients in the big Big city and London hospitals are are private patients paying in this way uh, for access to treatment. But there's still, you know, many and the lower middle classes, you know, who rely on those cottage hospitals, they're not getting any access to that sort of thing. Uh, They can't be treated as kind of uh, worthy poor patients and they can't afford to pay the high uh, costs of of the private doctors, so they end up with with poor quality nursing homes and, and cottage hospitals. So it's uh, fascinating uh, the the class divide and and how uh, how that impacted on things. So so but nine, by the nineteen thirties there was some sort of methodology, some some possibility of paying for healthcare. But by then, am I right in thinking you already we also had some element of national insurance system in place? T- tell us how that came about and 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 what uh, how it manifested itself. Yeah, um, the National Health uh, Act uh, of 19, uh, which comes into play in 1911, these are brought in as part of a kind of reform package that liberal governments of Asquith, uh, led by Lord George, bring in. And what they're interested in doing is kind of looking at what's happened in Germany in 1880s under the Bismarck reforms of, of national insurance and looking at a way of kind of spreading the cost across the population uh, to ensure that uh, problems that are identified, particularly by those surveys by Booth and Roundtree in the late 19th and early 20th century, when Booth and Roundtree kind of look at London, at York, and, and other people look at other cities, and they discover that there is a significant proportion of the population who are very poor, mainly because they're either uh, frictionally unemployed, i.e. they're in jobs where they can't work for the whole year, but more often than not, they are poor because they are ill in some way or disabled or have a chronic condition, which is not really being dealt with by those poor law structures. So the idea is to bring in a health insurance that pays for people to be off sick. 
uh, and pays for them when they're off sick so they can make sure they're properly cured uh, and then they can come back as effective workers once they've been properly cured. Um, and the system comes in, it doesn't pay an awful lot, but it's it's an interesting kind of uh, model in that it uses a contribution from general taxation, a contribution from the employer and a contribution from the patient or from the, the, the payee. So it's it's funded in this tripartite way and it offers benefits for uh, home treatment, medic doc to see uh, a panel doctor, uh, and um, and some other kind of treatments I mentioned earlier, TB and maternity. However, crucially, it does not cover hospital treatment, and it doesn't cover uh, wives and children. So it pays only for the contributor, the man, which is usually the man. There are some women contributors, but it pays mainly for the male contributor. So despite the opportunity here, the voluntary hospitals are strong enough to fight off the idea that they're going to be effectively nationalised uh, and, they, and they compete against that. So hospitals are not included in national insurance, which after the First World War leaves a big hole in hospital finances. Uh, inflation has shocked Costs have gone up through inflation and income has fallen because of inflation. They have to find a new system. And they go to the government initially, they plead to the government for at least a loan, if not you know, some long-term support. The government says no, it won't give them long-term support. So instead, many of the hospitals resort to charging patients. Now, they charge them a notional fee. It's not a direct cost. Uh, it's not exactly what the patient pays. Uh, and they encourage the development of uh, contributory insurance schemes from people who, from, from potential patients. So what you see growing up over the course of the interwar period is this huge network of uh, kind of contributor insurance schemes, uh, which uh, 2 million members in London, half a million members uh, in Sheffield, in Manchester, a quarter of a million in Leeds and Sheffield. These people pay in three pence a week, uh, deducted directly from their employers by their from their pay, and the employer then gives the money as a lump sum to local hospitals, and local hospitals then admit patients without charge if they meet the medical need. So this, uh, this system then develops that effectively what is happening is that people are contributing collecting together a large amount of money, giving it to the hospital, the hospital's using it, and they're admitting patients uh, for free. And you hear a lot of stories about the hospital almoner. So the hospital almoner comes in as this system is developed. And what she, because I believe all hospital almoners are female, what she does at this point is she interviews the patient, she checks that they're a member of a scheme. If they're not the member of a scheme, she looks to see if they're a charity case, uh, and that's usually children, the elderly, some women might be covered by a charity case. And then if they're not either of those things, then she will recommend that they have to pay. Um, and the, the, the fees for, for a hospital are around about 20 to 30 shillings a week, um, which is by no means, by the 30s, most of the hospital managers are saying this doesn't come anywhere close to covering the cost. It's really just a token contribution. Um. So that's really, really interesting. And one thing you've talked about there and touched on a couple of times is is women in this story. Uh, the hospital almoner there you just talked about, but also you mentioned earlier the um, the discrepancy in access to healthcare between men and women, particularly these insurance schemes, which are if, if employers uh, involved, then if women weren't uh, working for employers, then they wouldn't have access. So was there a big discrepancy gender-wise between access to healthcare? Yeah. Now, the, the huge difference takes place at uh, the level of general practice. Uh, doctors, your, your, your kind of local doctor, your family doctor. Um, the husband can be covered by national insurance, or you, previous to that, he was probably a member of a friendly society, a local, you know, sort of, a, a, again, a kind of association or collective system of, of, of raising money to cover ill health. So the, doc, the, the, the husband is usually covered um, for general practice, and, and probably half of all adult men are covered for general practice by the 1930s. Um, but the wives are not, the children are not. Usually people will look after children, doctors will look after children uh, on a pro bono basis. 
wives are a bit more complicated uh, and not everyone can be doing it uh, for free. Not everyone can treat for free. So people do have to contribute. And often, I suspect, I don't know a huge amount of this, but I suspect a lot of the time what they're actually paying for is the prescription rather than necessarily the treatment. But, so, but access really effectively covers half the population, most of which is male for doctors. On the other hand, hospital access is more democratic or more widely served. There seems to be less of a discrepancy on gender basis between men and women uh, in terms of hospital treatment. Women tend to get treated later. They tend to be more likely to be admitted as emergency cases. They're often more likely to use private routes by the 1930s. Uh, but they do have specialist women's hospitals. Many cities have specialist women's hospitals. There is an increasing number of maternity units to cover maternity. And roughly half of all women uh, in Britain are having their, their babies in hospital, at least one child in hospital by the end of the 1930s. Um, so hospital treatment for women tends to be a bit more uh, equal between men and women. It's not entirely so. Uh, and that's partly because of these uh, kind of systems of payment, uh, whether it's the employer, whether it's the workers' contributor scheme or whether it's direct payment. It allows women to kind of access these treatment systems because the, the contributor schemes usually cover uh, women, uh, wives and children as well. So national insurance, the state system, doesn't cover wives and children, but the kind of uh, voluntary... Um, contributor schemes do uh, and so hospital care is more open to women than general practice now that's a problem that exists there the ex problem that exists there is that what's happening in the 20s and 30s is a referral system is developing to get into hospital you have to be referred by a gp if you can't see a gp it becomes much more difficult to get referred to hospital so what tends to happen is that women as i say tend more likely to turn up as emergencies um They'll turn up in the casualty room, often then with a illness quite advanced, uh, and so therefore their, their mortality tends to be, be higher than it is for male patients in the interwar period. Um, but certainly, um, you know, there is access, there is systems developing, and and the women's hospitals, you know, are often providing really kind of quite exciting um, developments. One of the big uh, concerns of the interwar period is that maternal mortality is not falling in the same way that other kinds of infectious disease, other kinds of mortality are. So uh, mortality in general falls over the interwar period quite substantially. Infant mortality is falling really quite substantially. But maternal mortality, women in childbirth, is a sticking point. And so one of the things that does happen is that the uh, the women's hospitals invest in scientific uh, approaches to this. They, they in, uh, invest in pathology labs and uh, they invest in isolation units. Um, so they're trying to make their environments much safer for their, their female patients uh, and to try and avoid things like um, a fever as the main kind of issue by keeping women separate and having isolation in, in, in the maternity hospitals. So... Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's a complicated picture. And it's uh, like much of the, the interwar period. In any given type of healthcare system, it's probable that half the population is covered. It's just not always the same half. Um, it changes well on gender, it changes on class, uh, it changes on locality. So it's not a universal system. That said, it's probably the most widespread system anywhere in the world at that time. So, okay, so a complicated picture. What, very quickly, one thing I should have asked you about, you mentioned uh, general practitioners, GPs there, um, the, the, the local doctor. Um, is that system, was that system sort of an undercurrent throughout this period or does that, was there, I presume there always was a local doctor of some sort that people could rely on and either paid them or, or, or not, I guess? Yeah. Yes, I mean, the GP system in the 19th century is, is extensive, um, Britain is producing through uh, its medical schools a, a fairly substantial number of doctors. There's even some argument that at one level it's producing too many doctors for the market um, and that the 19th century 
sees considerable insecurity for medical doc- uh, for general practitioners, and they're insecure because so many of their patients are poor. You know, you've got a population of eighty plus percent who are, are working class and can't really afford many extras, of which medical tract uh, treatments one of them. So, yeah, GPs do exist. They some of them look for uh, jobs like working for the poor law is a, is a good is a good job to get because you're on a, a bit of a stipend if you do that, uh, or you work uh, as a doctor in the voluntary hospital that raises your profile, so you get some good private patients that can help subsidise your your lifestyle. Uh, but many of them, particularly in rural areas, just kind of work themselves to death on on very, very poor patients who, who give them virtually uh, nothing in return financially. Um, and there's some interesting cases. So if you go into uh, rural East Wales, um, doctors there are covering enormous parishes, individual doctors, huge parishes, very dispersed, and everyone is is very, very poor and virtually no one's paying them. So he's kind of like trotting around on a little donkey or something like that, you know, to see all these different people in the in the hills of, of Wales and, and receiving virtually no uh, payment for it. And this, of course, contrasts enormously with the kind of Sir Lancelot type uh, London uh, senior surgeons who the Harley Street practices, you know, who earn hundreds of thousands of pounds a year, you know, and 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 uh, have have dinner with the elite, um, but the general practitioner, you know, and it varies again in urban areas. Uh, the issue is is possibly one of competition for the best paying patients. Um, so there might be a good supply of doctors, uh, and there tends to be many more doctors in urban areas than there are in rural areas. Tends to be more uh, doctors in wealthy areas than there are in poor areas. Uh, so there's a very strong kind of uh, there's a very uneven distribution of medical practitioners that changes quite a lot with the introduction of uh, national insurance because that basically gives doctors a, a salary you get a panel what's called your panel doctor so you get uh, basically an allocation of patients much like they have today you get that allocation of patients you get a per capita payment for them so you've got a salary effectively it's it's not called that it's an honorarium uh, but they are effectively getting a salary for running a panel, um, and and if you if they were lucky, they might also have a um, a friendly society panel as well. And so by the early uh, by after nineteen fourteen, doctors are better off; they're much more stable than they are in the in the nineteenth century. So it uh, it sounds like there's probably a whole whole different podcast uh, to to be done on on the place of the local doctor and uh, probably a, an excellent TV series as well of a of a rural doctor in <laughs> Wales and a donkey. I can see that working. Right. So um, sort of d- 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 getting towards the end of the conversation, I guess all these elements, this sort of this complicated picture of different um, different bits of healthcare, they were kind of all conflated together eventually when we get up to to 1948 and the development of the of the NHS. Right. So I suppose. Uh, the, the authorities saw what was going on, saw that there was uh, uh, bits of healthcare, bits of insurance going on in different places, and they thought, well, we're going to have to bring this all together and, and make it into a, uh, a national system. Yes, I mean, in the um, during the war, uh, listeners may be familiar with a thing called the Beveridge Report, when uh, Lord Beveridge was commissioned by uh, Churchill's government to look into the welfare system. Uh, and to kind of assess how a welfare system could be changed after the war, how it would be funded, and who would kind of gain access to this. And Beveridge publishes this massive quarter of a million word report uh, in 1942, where he identifies uh, five giants uh, that are affecting uh, the population. Um, and there's a very famous car- low cartoon of, of sort of a small beverage with a little sword when there's these shadowy five giants uh, hovering over him. Uh, initially, the government say uh, Churchill is, is a little bit hostile to this report. He says it's a distraction, you know, it's, it comes out around about the same time as El Alamein, you know, and the war is it, it, it's at its worst point for Britain, it's perceived. Uh, and so Churchill kind of bats it back in the short term. But it comes back in 1943, and then by 1944, the Minister of Health, uh, Willink, uh, does publish a paper looking at a potential post-war national health service. And they're already beginning to use that term, national health service, at this point. Now, the Conservative proposals 
are not universal. They want to maintain elements of the voluntary system. They want to maintain elements of the contributor system. And they want to maintain a fairly hefty chunk of private practice um, because that's what the powerful doctors want. They, they want to retain that private practice. They don't want to become salaried officials of the state. Um, and so the Conservative paper is discussed. There's a lot of uh, kind of um, input into it. But when Labour win in 1945 the election with a landslide, they perceive, and it's often been back projected onto them, that they won that in part on, on providing a national health service. The big difference that they come up with is that their national health service is going to be universal, free at the point of delivery, funded by taxation. This is hugely, hugely different to the systems that develop across Europe uh, at the same time, which all build on the national insurance system, the contributory system, uh, the independence of doctors, the independence of institutions. So it's a very, very different uh, kind of result that comes up in Britain. And one of the very controversial parts of it is that um, an Iron Bevan, who is the Minister of, Ed of Health, decides to nationalise all those hospitals. So all those voluntary hospitals get taken over by the state. All of the poor law institutions get taken over by the state. All the infectious diseases, that whole system is taken in and one hospital system is created. There is a slight caveat to that, but it's, 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 it, all of them become state-funded and state-controlled. So in uh, the outcome of that is that he creates a national system. He then has a problem with the doctors, and the doctors remain reluctant to become state salaried officials. And in the end, uh, Bevan does win that in a famous kind of compromise, which is known as stuffing the doctor's mouths with gold, or somebody accuses him of doing this, um, that the doctors basically are allowed to continue private practice, but within the NHS. Um, and doctors are allowed, uh, but are, the majority of doctors are brought in as salaried officials. So we do see this unified system created and it is partly kind of based on an assumption of, well, not an assumption, I'd go so far as to say it's kind of propaganda about the pre-1939 system that it doesn't work, it doesn't function at all. It's all about a chaos of, of too many different providers. It's all about, you know, lack of access. And, you know, as I said, it, 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 that is the case. You know, there are 50% of the population are covered at any one time for one thing. There are some places... In South Wales, for example, where there are lots and lots of small hospitals, you know, where there are huge provision, uh, but it's not very effective because it's too small. Or in a big city where there's excellent modern provision, but there's not enough beds. So each of these things um, kind of creates the need for a solution. The solution which Bevan comes up with is very, very radical uh, by worldwide standards and remains so the fact that we still have tax-based, universal, free-at-the-point-of-delivery system is, is really, really very unusual. Um, and so he, he kind of wins. There are problems, though, in the, in the outturn of this. The first thing that you've done is effectively you've doubled demand for healthcare overnight because you've made all those people who weren't covered before they're now covered. They now have access to healthcare, and particularly have access to GPs. And one of the famous kind of images of the early NHS is queues of women, women queuing down the street to see the, the GP to deal with conditions that they've had, chronic conditions they've had for, for 20 years. Uh, so all these women suddenly gain access to this. So the NHS has to deal predominantly with meeting its new demand, which means that it does virtually no capital work for 15 years. Virtually no hosp new hospitals are built anywhere in England or Wales in the uh, 1950s. And you don't see a big kind of growth in new hospitals till the 60s on the back of uh, Enoch Powell's 1962 hospital plan. So the NHS hugely increases access, gives people free at the point of delivery, but is very, very, uh, it's hamstrung by the fact that it can't update the system that it ha has inherited because it doesn't have, it can't afford both the new capital projects and the huge backlog of demand. 
Well, that's absolutely fascinating, Barry. We've got up to the NHS and uh, the foundation of the NHS and slightly beyond. Um, there's so many things that I, I wanted to chat about, but we're uh, a little bit out of time, so we haven't really covered social care or care for the elderly or or first aid, which I know you're working on, or indeed ambulances, which w- would have been a fascinating topic. So we might have to come back and, and have another chat. But um, before we finish, is there any are there any big points that we've overlooked? Any any things that I haven't mentioned or asked you that uh, are really pertinent to this discussion? I mean, I think I would like to to emphasise um, that that point, which I kind of threw away somewhere recently, which is that Britain's healthcare system uh, in the nineteen twenties and thirties, you know, is nowhere was nowhere near as good as the NHS uh, turned out to be and has always been, uh, and it wasn't necessarily the answer to how you you develop a healthcare system, but what it had produced, I would argue, by nineteen thirties is the most extensive, most democratic healthcare system anywhere in the world at that time. It is bigger, it is more widely dispersed, it is more modern, and it is more easily accessible for the a significant proportion of the population uh, than almost anywhere else. Uh, so, I, I, no, not almost, I would say anywhere else in the world at the time. Um, and I think that's something that we often overlook when we kind of talk about the NHS you know, there is a tendency to see the pre-NHS system as either the poor law or kind of cold charity, when in fact what you have by the the 30s is a very extensive modern healthcare system, which a substantial proportion of the population have access to. Well, we better leave it there. But um, Professor Barry Doyle, thank you very much for your time. A very interesting insight into, uh, into healthcare before the NHS and a little bit afterwards. So thank you very much. Thank you. That was Professor Barry Doyle of the University of Huddersfield. If you're interested in more on the history of health and medicine, you'll find a wealth of articles and podcasts at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when Sean Rees will be speaking about an eccentric Victorian's attempt to create a new English language. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.